The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. Hey, thanks so much for joining us today. We are going to continue through the Gospel of Luke, but for the next three weeks, I just want to let you know we're going to be in a mini-series, if you will, because Jesus is going to set up on the Mount of Olives and he is going to preach a sermon on the end times. He's going to talk about the signs that come before the end. He's going to talk a little bit about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. He's going to talk about things that make it very difficult for us to interpret because as if any prophecy, when we hear it, we want to immediately go and pinpoint, okay, he's talking about this now, he's talking about this now, but really we don't know for sure until those events happen. But for the next three weeks, we are going to walk through Jesus' sermon on the end times. And we're going to break it into these parts, not because of any specific reason other than we can't get through it in one message. And this is a very, very polarizing topic. It is one of the most debated passages in the Gospels. And it's debated for a couple reasons. Primarily, it's because the literature, the literature of prophecy in Scripture is tough to interpret. We don't just find it in the Gospels. We find it primarily in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. Those are incredibly difficult books to interpret because we don't know for sure what the author is talking about. He's talking about future events, what's going to occur. We don't know for sure. Sometimes the language is figurative. Other times it's literal. We just won't know until the events happen. What makes this particular passage, the one we're going to read in Luke chapter 21, what makes it very difficult is that Jesus seemingly jumps back and forth between prophesying about the destruction of the temple, which will occur in 70 AD. We're at probably 30 AD right now. So four decades from now, the temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed by a Roman army. Okay, that, We know that happened. That's history. We know that. So he jumps back and forth between talking about that, the destruction of the temple, and his second coming, the return of Jesus, which still hasn't happened, despite what some people want you to believe. Jesus has not come back from heaven yet. And so as he's talking, he seems to kind of be jumping back and forth. Now, the section we have today does appear to be talking more about the temple. That's purely based on context. There's things in there that seem like he's talking about his second coming. So we are left to try to figure it out. That's what makes this so difficult. And I just want you to know that my intent is to walk through the text. I am not going to give you a roadmap for how this all plays out. I'm not going to do that because I don't think that's prudent. I think anyone who tells you they know exactly what this prophecy is talking about, I think that's taking a huge step of illogic thought. No one knows for sure except the one prophesying. And the reason it's a little obscure is because we're not supposed to know for sure. The biggest thing to remember, though, moving forward, biggest thing to remember moving forward for these next few weeks, apocalyptic literature, end of times literature within the Bible, okay? It is designed, it is designed to encourage the saints, those who follow the Lord. It's designed to encourage them to stay faithful, remain faithful until the end. It is not designed to chronologically pinpoint everything that's going to happen and exactly how it's going to happen. 
That's not the purpose of these writings. So it's important for us to remember that. This is supposed to be an encouragement to you. That's the point of it. That's the purpose. That's the why behind it being in the Bible so that you will be encouraged to stay the course, to hang in there, to finish the race. Now, let's begin. Luke chapter 21, verses 5 and 6. This is how the conversation about the end times starts. Some of his disciples, some of Jesus' disciples, were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. So they're leaving the temple courts. They turn back around and they look and they go, man, Herod has been remodeling this for a while and it's really beautiful. It is truly a stunning, stunning piece of architecture. But Jesus said, verse six, as for what you see here, everything you're taking in right now, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. This temple is going to be gone. Jesus knows this. He's prophesying about it. We know now, 40 years from this date, it will be destroyed, literally taken down to the dirt. But it's as the disciples walk away towards Bethany. They're heading back out for the night. It's the end of Tuesday. It's been a very long day. They become captivated by the beauty of this temple. They're not thinking of its possible destruction because in their mind, it could never, ever, ever be destructed. It couldn't be taken away. In fact, what they're probably thinking is still in the back of their minds, I wonder if we're going to get to occupy it. I wonder if Jesus, even though he's told us multiple times, he's not going to be king. I wonder if maybe kind of after that victory today with the religious elite, maybe he is going to go set up and sit on a throne in the temple and we'll get to be part of his court. The temple itself was magnificent. It had begun a remodel or repairs back in 19 BC. So almost 50 years earlier, it had, be, it had been begun a remodeling project. Herod made sure of that. It won't be completed until almost 60 AD. So that's a, that's a long time. That's an 80-year remodel project. That's how intensive they were redoing the structure itself. But even at this point, in around 30 AD, it's jaw-dropping. It is beautiful. Josephus, a first century historian, he wrote about the temple this way. He described its gold plating. He talked about the white stone, how brilliantly it's shown in the sunlight. He talked about its overall size. It was over 70 feet tall at its highest point. That's a huge structure for the first century, especially out in the middle of nowhere Palestine. So Josephus was impressed with it. Every person, every Jew who had been to the temple, they saw it as a sign of their security. That temple was there. They knew they were good because the presence of God resided in that temple. They knew they were safe. They knew that God was with them and that temple represented all of it. But Jesus, Jesus, he saw it differently. He saw the temple for what it really was. It was the home base of the hypocritical religious elite, the ones who were conspiring at that moment how to kill him. The people who ran that temple were the ones trying to figure out how to arrest and murder him. It was the same people from that same temple who would send out scout parties to find, arrest, and eventually martyr his disciples in the decades to come. He saw it completely differently. He saw what it should have been, 
It should have been a house of prayer for his father, but they turned it into a den of thieves. And he lets them know it's going away. It's all going away. And that was a huge bombshell to his disciples. So they chew on that as they walk about a mile outside of Jerusalem. And when they get to the top of the Mount of Olives, they can't chew on it any longer. They have to ask, Jesus, what did you mean by that? What in the world are you talking about? Mark tells us the location. So I want to read that. Mark 13, 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite of the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately. They pulled him aside. And here's the question recorded in Luke 21, verse 7. They said, teacher, rabbi, when will these things happen? You talked about that temple being destroyed stone by stone. But when? When will it occur? When is that going to happen? And, and specifically, what will be the signs that they are about to take place? Are, are we going to have any warning? Now, this is a valid question, okay? It's very, very valid because to a Jew in the first century, if the temple was destroyed and gone, that meant the end had come. There was no way that the dwelling place of God could be destroyed by man. There's no chance. It just meant the end of the world. So what they're really asking is, yes, we're concerned about the temple, but come on, Uh, this can't just happen overnight. There's got to be a ramp up to it. Can you please, can you please give us what the warning signs will be? Can you let us know, please, when this is going to happen so that we can be ready? We don't want to be caught off guard by this because what you just said really, 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 really sounds crazy. And I don't think we're any different. I think most of us realize that at some point the end will come. We don't know when. People have said it was going to be this date and that came and went and it didn't happen. But would you not like a couple days heads up, a couple months for notice to, hey, this is the end. This is the last day. Would you not enjoy that? Would that not be good for you? I think we all would want that. And now their teacher, the one they trust in, just said this is coming. To them, it means the end of the world. Hey, can, can we just get a little heads up here, please? Just a little warning. What's going to happen first? And Jesus, he answers them. I don't think it was the answer they were looking for because it doesn't really tell them a whole lot of good, but he does answer their question. He says, well, first you're going to know the end is near. You're going to know the destruction of the temple is coming because there's going to be some birth pains. Okay, there's going to be some birth pains. And there's three particular categories of things that are going to happen surrounding the end. And they are that there will be false Christs who claim to be me, but they're really not. There's going to be wars that happen all over the world. There's going to be rumors of more wars. There's going to be famines. People are going to be starving. And there's going to be earthquakes. These are all things that are going to happen before the end will come. He says it in Luke chapter 21, verses 8 through 11. Jesus replied, Watch out. Watch out that you are not deceived. Now the word watch out, it means... It means to discern realities, certain realities, to discern certain realities which lie beyond the observation of physical senses. So it doesn't just mean to look, doesn't just mean to look around, doesn't just mean watch. 
It means you've got to discern what's going on around you. You've got to read between the lines to figure this stuff out. And you're going to hear about a bunch of stuff. For many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. You follow the true Lord. I am him. I am he. You know who the true Lord is. Do not follow people who come after me saying that they're me. Don't do it. Verse 9, when you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. It's not going to be a short period of time. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nations, kingdoms against kingdoms. There will be great earthquakes, famines, pestilence in various places, and fearful events along with great signs from heaven. So he gives no real, real specifics, but he says all of these things are the birth pains. They're the beginning of the end. And I've never delivered a child. My wife has beautifully bring, brought three boys into this world, but she knew she was in labor. How? She's not a test for it necessarily. It's when her belly went... Ugh! And she was in extreme pain. She knew something beautiful was coming at the end of this. But she was going to have to go through a lot, a lot of agony, a lot of pain to get to that beautiful end. And that's why God mercifully said, hey, guys wouldn't make it through. If we want to populate this world, it's going to have to be the women that do this. Because there's a lot of pain associated with childbirth. But the end is worth the pain. And Jesus is saying, there's going to be a lot of pain in this world before the end comes. And you need to be aware of that. And you need to know that when it happens, when the wars break out and the earthquakes come and the famines hit, when the false teachers show up, you're going to be like, what is going on? Just realize it's all part of the plan. It's part of the birth pains that lead to the beautiful, beautiful ending. And that's Jesus's return. We know for a fact that these signs did take place over the decades to come. The book of Acts mentions several false Christs who came. So the book of Acts records the years after Jesus' life. They record Paul's missionary journeys. So the book of Acts mentions several false Christs. Theodos, Judas, both in Acts chapter 5. There's an unnamed Egyptian in Acts 21. There's kind of a fun character named Bar-Jesus in Acts chapter 13. He's not identified as a false Christ, but he checked all the boxes to be one. So we had false Christ come show up within the decades right after Jesus taught this. In the 40 years between the words that Jesus spoke and the destruction of the temple, multiple threats of war had come. Three different Roman emperors had said they were going to destroy the Jewish people. And the last one, Nero, he actually came after the Christians. So you had Caligula, you had Claudius. They both swore they were going to take out the Jewish population. So that was a rumor of war. And Nero, he tried his best to take out the Christians. But even more threatening were the civil wars that broke out between the different factions of Jewish people. They basically wiped themselves out in the 40 years after Jesus spoke these words. There were six documented earthquakes. We, we have historical data for six earthquakes that happened between 46 and 63 AD. So those happened. And Agabus, actually, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 11, verse 28, he predicted a severe famine. Let's read it. It says, one of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. 
So he got that right. Jesus is saying, these are the birth pains that are leading up to something. Once again, is it the destruction of the temple? Well, that all happened before the destruction of the temple. Is it before Jesus returns? I think we can assume that as well. Once again, we don't know and we can't place markers, but I do think we can assume that it's both and. And what are we supposed to do by it? We're supposed to be encouraged to remain strong even when all of this hell is breaking loose in our world. The birth pains will then lead to persecution because of the gospel. This is what Jesus promises in the next few verses. I'm telling you, this teaching is not necessarily fun, but it is truth. Luke chapter 21, verses 12 through 19. But before all of this, okay, before all of this, they will seize you and they will persecute you. Jesus, talking to his disciples, this will happen to you. You will be arrested you'll be persecuted. They, being the Sanhedrin, will hand you over to synagogues. They will put you in prison and you'll be brought before kings and governors. And in fact, all of this will happen to Jesus in just a few days. Now, I don't think he's prophesying about his own arrest and betrayal and execution. I don't think he's talking about that, but all of that will occur. And he says, this will all happen on account of my name. They're going to do this to you, not because you've done anything wrong, but because you are associated with me. I just want you to be aware of this. This is coming. This will happen. Verse 13. And so you will bear testimony to me. You will go forth and tell people who I am, the good news of Jesus Christ. That's your mission. That's your purpose. We call that the gospel. The good news of Jesus is the gospel. You will take the gospel forward. In fact, Mark adds right here in this point, and I don't know why Luke leaves it out, that Jesus says the gospel must be preached to all nations. The gospel must be preached to all nations. Before the end will come, that, that, that has to happen. So that's another marker right there. Verse 14, but make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourself. When you're arrested, when you're put on trial, make up your mind beforehand not to worry. Don't wither under the pressure. Know that I have you. Know that I've got you. Verse 15, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. I love that. You're going to be standing in front of governors. You're going to be standing in front of kings. You're going to be standing in front of judges. They are going to hear the words I give you and they are going to either be enamored by them or unable to contradict them. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will be your counselor. I've never been in a courtroom. I've never been on trial. But I do know this. If I were and I trusted my lawyer and my lawyer, my counselor said, when you stand before the judge, say this exactly. I'm going to say that word for word. I'm not going to go rogue in that moment and be like, I, I've got this. I, 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 I know how to handle this. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to say exactly what my counselor tells me to say in front of that judge because they know what they're doing. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. Don't worry about how you'll defend yourself. Just say what I tell you to say. Verse 16, you will be betrayed even by parents, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, your friends, and they will put some of you to death. Your faith in me will cause great persecution and maybe none worse than what will come from your own families. They won't understand why you're following me. They won't get it and they won't like it. And some of you will even have to lay down your lives because of your association with me, because of your faith in me. Verse 17, everyone will hate you because of me. 
but not a hair on your head will perish. So stand firm. Stand firm, guys, and you will win life. Now, I wish the word there said life eternal because I'm sure that's what Jesus means, but it doesn't say that in the Greek. So it just says stand firm and you will win. You will win life. And I think it means your reward will be life eternal. Because remember, all apocalyptic literature, all prophecy, it exists to encourage the saints to endure. That's why it's there. That's what it's for. And so Jesus is not trying to put out a roadmap. He's trying to encourage his disciples to stand firm, stay strong. And if you do so, if when you're standing in front of judges, if you do not renounce me, if you cling to me, you will win life. You will win life eternal. As this passage pertains to the end, I don't see any distinct markers being placed for the disciples or for us to watch for as predictions as to when the end is going to come. I don't see them there. But instead, I do see within these three sections, I see Jesus teaching us something very important. From each section, I I see something that we need to learn. And from the first section, I see this, that the world is temporary. Jesus says, look at the temple, something that you've put all your hope in, something that you put all your trust in. As long as it's there, you feel secure. Guess what? It's not going to be there forever. Every one of its stones are going to be destroyed. And what that tells us is that we must realize that nothing we put our hope in other than Jesus will remain. No matter how confident you are in your wealth, in your health, in your beauty, in your strength, in your wisdom, your happiness, your relationships, those are all fleeting. Those are all slowly disappearing. And one day they will pass. Yet one thing will remain. And that one thing is Jesus. So put your hope And your trust in him, not in the things of this world, because this world is temporary. I see that in the first section. In the second section, I see Jesus teaching us and his disciples to keep your head out of the clouds and stay on mission. Stay on mission. For the rest of our lives, and absolutely for the disciples' lives, they were being taught by different leaders and trying to be convinced by different people that this natural disaster or this theology or this occurrence, that's the big one. That, that shows that the end is here. Know that these things are going to happen. Know that these people are going to say these things, but continue to live with a mission and a purpose. That mission, that purpose is Jesus. Continue to do so. I think it's Ironic that the church in Thessalonica got one of the most amazing letters from Paul talking about the end, talking about the rapture, talking about the church being taken up, talking about how this will come. They read that first letter and they became so enamored with the idea of getting to go to heaven. Because if you were with us last week, we talked about how poor they were. They were ready to go be with God. They were so excited, they stopped working. They were so excited, they stopped marrying people. They stopped doing all this stuff. And Paul literally had to write a second letter. Second Thessalonians was written because after first Thessalonians was received, they all just quit and started staring at the heavens going, come on, Jesus, we're ready. And he writes all of second Thessalonians to tell them these things have to occur first and get back to work, get back to the mission. The third section, the third thing we need to learn is that the gospel must go forward and that the persecution that you will receive from, its, from the gospel allows its progress allows its progress. So persecution should be expected and it should not cause you to lose heart. Some will lose their life for the gospel. Some will. Some, many have. But I would say for the majority of us, for the majority of us listening to this today, 
you will simply be looked at as radical by your family, by the scoffers, by your coworkers, by the embarrassment that comes from academics who say, how could you possibly believe in such a religious crutch? You will be mocked. You, that is a form of persecution. And Jesus says, stand firm. Stand firm in that. Persecution is the means by which the gospel goes forward. For the first several years of the church, it stayed in Jerusalem. The Christian church stayed in Jerusalem. You know what made it finally spread out and start taking the gospel to the ends of the earth? Persecution. Specifically, Stephen, one of the faithful, was stoned in the middle of the courts in Jerusalem. Stoned to death. And those witnessing it went, well, I don't want to be stoned to this, so I'm going to go. And as they left, because of persecution, they took the gospel with them. Persecution is not a good thing, but it does produce good things. It produces good things. It allows the gospel to go forward. And church, the final thing I want you to hear today as tough as your present sufferings are, Jesus has promised you something. He's promised you something that makes enduring those sufferings worth it. Everything you see is temporary, including your sufferings. But there is a reward. There is a reward that comes from standing firm, from staying committed, from keeping the faith. Romans 8.18 I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us for those who stand firm. We can find joy even in this difficult teaching from Jesus, a teaching that many people find scary and hard to interpret. I find joy in it because everything we have here is temporary, including our sufferings. And that allows me to endure and it brings me joy. There will be all kinds of crazy rumors but all it means is that he's coming. When you hear, oh, this is going to happen and this collapse is imminent and this is going to transpire, then just know that that means Jesus is that much closer to coming. And don't be worried. Don't be terrified. Don't, don't live in fear, but instead live in joy knowing that God has this and he's coming back. And finally, persecution, even as painful as it may be, means that the advancement of the gospel is happening. That's the salvation of man, which leads to the glory of God, and his ultimate return is taking place. It's happening, church. There is something more. I think that's the crux of what Jesus wants us to know. There's something more, more than the temple, more than this life. There's something more, and it's coming very soon. But are you ready? Are you ready for it? Are you ready for what's coming? It's my prayer today that you are. And I hope beyond hope that as you hear these words, it is churning within your spirit a joy of salvation, a faith in the one who can overcome. And I pray that you are moved by him to respond to him with your own rock-solid faith that will lead you through this life, this temporary life, into life eternal into the win that Jesus discusses, that he talks about. I want that for all of us. And it starts with you placing your faith in him. So Father, come and move mightily right now in and through us so that we might hear your words, apply them to our life, be strengthened in our faith, encouraged in our persecution and trials. And God, may you receive all the glory. We love you so much for who you are and for what you do. It's in your name we pray, amen.